so much for giving me the opportunity to be here with you today and also to uh, just tell you a little bit about Elam Care through the DVD and I will be uh, at my display table afterwards uh, to answer any other questions that you might have. Elam is a, a ministry of the North Central District and part of the Evangelical Free Church and uh, so we want to connect as much as we can to the people of our Evangelical Free Churches. If you have your Bibles now, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'm going to start with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then on to verse 14. And this Word, which is Jesus, became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. One day when I was chaplain at our Elam home in Princeton, I was told when I got to work that a certain resident, I'm going to call her Betty, wanted to see me right away. So I went to Betty's room and she thanked me for coming and then she got right down to business and she said, Pastor Dave, I'm going to die today. And I backpedaled a little bit because Betty was a great lady. I loved her dearly. She was sharp. She was funny. And we had just had the best time for the couple years that she had been there. And I said, no, 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 you're not going to die today. You know, maybe, maybe in six months or, you know, I know your health has been failing, but, but not today. She said, no, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die today. So I finally realized that she probably knew what she was talking about, as many people do who are in her type of situation. They do often know. I knew that Betty was a strong Christian. We had talked about her faith many times. But I wanted to make sure that she had peace and assurance herself and that she was, you know, just ready to go. And so we talked and she began to review her life with me a little bit and talking about what her life had been like and about her children and how she had launched them into faith-filled, wonderful adults. And and then she summed up her life this way. She said, As I look back on my life, I really have no regrets. And Betty was right. She did die later that day. But I can contrast Betty's story with another man that I think of whom I'll call Ben, who was really outspoken about his Christian faith and would wheel up and down the halls talking about Christ. And yet, as he was dying, his son, whom he had alienated from him many years before, had come to want reconciliation and peace with his father before he died. And as the son came into his room, Ben started in on his controlling ways and started degrading his son again. And his son said, I just can't take it, and he left. Now what's the difference between Betty and Ben? Many things could be mentioned for sure. 
But for me, I think what it really comes down to is this. Had they, have we, have I, really submitted ourselves to God's ultimate purpose for our life? And so I ask the question, well, what is that purpose? And I think Romans 8.29 answers that for us. Now, 8.29 is kind of a neglected verse because it comes after a much more famous verse, 8.28, right? I mean, we all memorize that one. We know that one. But I'm going I'm to read those two verses. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So what is that good? What is that purpose that we have been called according to? Verse 29 answers it. For those that God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So in other words, the purpose of our lives, the reason that we were created, the issue which separates Betty from Ben the one thing that you are destined for above all else is to become like Jesus. Now hopefully I'm stating the obvious. I'm sure you've heard this hundreds of times from Pastor Rick. But I need to ask a further question. Okay, so, if I am to be like Jesus, what does that look like? What does that mean? When I am conformed to the image of Christ, will I, perhaps, look like Him? Like we tried to do back in the late 60's and early 70's in the Jesus people days? Should I have long hair and wear sandals and, of course, we didn't wear robes, but, you know, bare feet and sandals, whatever? Is is that what it means to be like Jesus? Well, no, of course not. Well, maybe it means that I take on Jesus' personality. So, if I'm an extrovert, then I have to become an introvert, which I think Jesus probably was. Well, that's not what it means either. What it means to be like Jesus is to take on the character of Jesus. The spiritual attributes, the core foundations of life, which then express themselves uniquely through each and every physical and personality. And the best biblical description of Jesus naming those core character traits, those spiritual foundations of His life, is found in John 1, verse 14. And I'm going to read it again. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the One and Only who came from the Father. Now, here's the description. Full of grace and truth. So that's what it means to be like Jesus. That is our individual part in the process of discipleship. It is to become like Jesus. To become ourselves like Him, full of grace and truth. So I want to look carefully at each of those parts today and see so that we can understand what it means to be full of grace and truth. 
So first of all, to be like Jesus means that we will be full of grace. We must be grounded in grace. We must live in grace. We must show grace to everyone that we meet. What is grace? Well, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is God's benevolent action on behalf of all people, allowing them the opportunity to live and to hear of Him. But grace is more specifically God's action on behalf of repentant sinners, forgiving them all of their sin and giving them, as Pastor Rick said just a couple minutes ago, Christ's perfect righteousness instead of our sin. Grace is a cornerstone activity in the whole process of salvation. It is God's bent toward us of love and mercy. Grace withholds God's judgment because of Christ's intercession on our behalf. Now, great minds think alike because I want to read for you Romans 5, 1 and 2 which have already been read for you. They were up on the screen. I couldn't believe it when I saw them. But I'm going to read them for you again. Listen carefully. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So grace is the place that we stand. I like to call it the land of grace. This is the land in which we live right now. If we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, He is the door into the land of grace. And it is through Him that we have access. Faith is the key which unlocks the door and swings it wide. And then we step into and live in the land of grace. And when we do that, we experience forgiveness of all of our sins and we receive Christ's righteousness instead. So, having experienced this land of grace, as we go about our life living in the land of grace, we can be and should be, if we are to be like Jesus, grace-filled to others. Because it is true that no matter what you do, no matter what you have done, no matter what you continue to do, no matter how much or how little your sin, we step into and live in the land of grace and God Himself makes this pronouncement about us when we enter into the land of grace. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is full of grace. So when we are in Christ Jesus, we live in the land of grace, and grace sets us free from the condemnation of sin. Grace sets us free from the condemnation of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up not really understanding grace. 
I grew up in a pretty conservative Baptist church. And in those days, we didn't really talk about grace very much because we were a little bit afraid of grace. We were, we were afraid, you know, Paul says in Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Right? You know that verse. Well, we were afraid that that verse would flip over on itself and where grace abounded, sin would abound much more. You know, we were afraid to talk about grace because we thought, well, if people knew that they were completely forgiven and that they really lived in grace, well, then they were just going to go out and do whatever they wanted. So we were content to talk about the demands of the law, about the externals, about sin and about avoiding sin by trying harder in our own efforts. But the older I got, the less that worked. It just didn't work. Because pretty soon I realized, you know what? My parents can't control me anymore. My coaches in high school can't control me anymore. And all of a sudden I realized... And I grew more and more rebellious, and I got more creative in my sinning. And after a while, I just sort of let myself go to sin and evil ways. But later on, when I really, truly gave my life to Christ, I really surrendered to Him, I experienced grace. I can still remember sitting at the kitchen table in my parents' house. It was about 11 o'clock at night. When, and I was all by myself, and, and I just finally surrendered my life. And I felt so light, and so happy, and so filled with joy. I was forgiven, and I was given Christ's righteousness in place of my sin. But you know what? I still didn't understand grace. So from that point on then, I went about my Christian life trying to live it the way I'd been taught as a kid. To try harder and live by the externals. And it was my own effort and my own righteousness and, and my own attempts to please God. And as the years passed, that didn't work either. And then through just a series of things and, and some you know, nationally known people started writing about grace and talking about grace and I began reading about grace and I went to this uh, retreat called Curcio where I really experienced God's love in a, in a really cool way. And I realized that, hey, I can never earn God's favor. I can never be good enough to gain His acceptance. These things He offers to me as free gifts. And I'm secure in His love. And so are you. So are you. If you're in Christ Jesus and you live in the land of grace, you do live in the land of grace. And you are secure in His love as well. Now, that same kind of relationship that we have through, with God through Christ should be true in all of our relationships <clears throat> with other people. We need to accept people unconditionally. Not because they earn it or deserve it, but because they're God's child just like we are. 
We forgive people all of their wrongs and their slights and the hurts, not because they deserve it, not because they ever even ask for it, but because of Christ and His forgiveness. Now that sounds scary, I know, doesn't it? It makes me feel a little uncomfortable every time I say that. Because I wonder, will the person ever really realize they're wrong? Will they ever change? Will they ever admit it and repent? Well, that's why only grace by itself is incomplete. That's why Jesus is not only full of grace, He's full of grace and truth. Churches that emphasize grace to the exclusion of truth think that they're being loving and forgiving, but they don't truly love if they don't speak the truth in love. And they're not forgiving at all because if there's no truth, then there's nothing to forgive. And they, in in essence, negate the Gospel. So let's look now at the other side of the coin. Let's look at truth and understand how we can be full of truth. And then I'm going to talk briefly about how to supernaturally bring those two together to be full of grace and truth. So to be like Jesus is not only to be full of grace, but also to be full of truth. If we live in the land of grace, which I believe we do, which Paul says we do, then truths are the signposts, the instructions, pointing out the way of life and blessing in the land of grace. There is a path that God wants us to walk. And and if we walk that path, it's a life of blessing. Not necessarily happiness, not riches, but blessings and life abundant. See, grace doesn't mean that we ignore sin or neglect truth. In fact, I believe it's only the person who fully trusts in God's grace. It is only the person that is fully assured that they are totally forgiven by God. It is only that person that can be ruthless in the pursuit of sin in their own life, right? Because if you know you're forgiven, then you can say, search me, O God, and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And if there is, you confess it and you're forgiven. So when we enter the land of grace, when we are forgiven, when we are given Christ's righteousness in place of our sin, all those things are true, but we do not automatically become perfect. Right? Or, or am I the only one that didn't become perfect and, and you all did? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> We're freed by grace from the condemnation of sin, but we still sin. That's why Jesus said to His disciples, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, grace sets us free 
from the condemnation of sin. But truth sets us free from the consequences of sin. From those ongoing effects of sin. Sets us free from the bondage of sin. Soon after my wife Myrna and I were married, we, we worked for this really rich couple who owned a lake place up in northern Minnesota. And I would uh, mow the lawn, pull the weeds out of the beach, polish the speedboat, you know, really a tough, tough summer job. And my wife would cook and clean for them. Now, I was a college student, and we had lived the year before. Our budget for groceries was $10 a week. It was some years ago. But now working for this rich couple, he had reached in his pocket and peeled off a lot of $100 bills and given them to me for grocery money. You know, and I'm like, man, I had never even seen a $100 bill before. And they wanted us to have, you know, just abundance of, of stuff on hand there so that when, when they came up to the lake place, they had what they wanted. We definitely lived in the land of grace of this rich man's kingdom. All was provided in abundance. But my wife and I were not transformed. And I can remember going to the grocery store. It took us several weeks of renewing our minds, of telling each other the truth at the grocery store. And my wife would say, does he really want us to buy all this stuff? Yeah. Okay? That's the way it is for us in the land of grace. We are living in the abundance of God's kingdom. And we have all of the riches of Christ at, at hand for us. But we don't always fully enter into that. We need to be transformed. Listen to another description of this also by Paul from Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read just a couple verses. Surely you heard of Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So what is it that combats the lies and the deceit? Truth. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in the land of grace, we are transformed into the image of Christ. We become actually full of grace and truth by listening to the truth, believing the truth, obeying the truth, letting the truth renew our minds so that we think the truth, live the truth, know the author of truth with the eyes of our heart, then... The truth will set us free. The truth will set us free from the consequences of sin. Now, hopefully you notice that in both instances, grace and truth, neither of these happen apart from Jesus. 
there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is the truth of Jesus' teaching that sets us free from the consequences of sin. So, it is only as we live supernaturally in Jesus, it is only through relationship with Jesus that we actually become like Him, full of grace and truth. So let's look briefly at Jesus in action and see if we can pick up how it is that we can be like Him, full of grace and truth. This story is found in the Gospels, but I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen. Because Jesus is in the temple, and He's teaching. He's teaching truth. He's teaching lots of truth. Jesus taught truth all the time. He said stuff like, The law says, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks at another woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, He's teaching. He's full of grace. He doesn't lessen the demands of the law. He actually heightens them by pointing out the path of life. So, there He is. He's teaching. And as He's teaching, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees set a trap for Jesus. They have caught a woman in adultery. So they drag her out as a pawn in their scheme to catch Jesus. And they set her in front of Him with the crowd around and then all of these religious leaders. And they say this, You know, Jesus, the law says adulterers must die. And they were right. That's exactly what the law says. The law says you're supposed to stone them. So, as they do that, they set up for Jesus this huge dilemma, right? It's the dilemma that we face every day. It's the dilemma that we face all the time in our relationships with other people. It's the dilemma we face in our own lives. It's the dilemma of grace and truth. Because if he ignores the sin, if he says, wow, adultery, I mean, that's no big deal. People do it all the time. You know, he poo-poos sin. What has he done? He's negated the whole law and all truth. But if on the other hand, he picks up a huge rock and throws it at her, he negates love and grace. And forgiveness. And the new covenant. So he writes on the ground. And then he says, Now, all of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. Now what's the point of that? Well, he says that to teach everyone, to teach us, that we're all the same. We're all guilty before God. The, the, the Pharisees, even though they thought they were perfect and had perfect righteousness, weren't. Neither were the teachers of the law. Neither were the people. Neither was the woman. They were all the same before God. We've all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So we all deserve to die. 
And unbelievably, they get it. They understood. And so they all walk away. But the dilemma remains. Right? It's still there because the woman is still in front of him. And the dilemma between grace and truth, even though there was no audience anymore, the dilemma is still there. You see, there's only one solution to the dilemma. There's only one way for each of us to truly live in grace and truth, to become like Jesus, to be transformed into the image of Christ, and that is through a supernatural relationship with Jesus. And so somehow sensing this woman's repentance, her heart, whatever, Jesus says, based on Himself and His impending sacrifice for sin, He asks the question, does no one condemn you? No one, sir. Well, neither do I, He says. The great I Am can say that. He's the only one who can say that. And we can say that only based upon His sacrifice for sin. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's pure grace. That is supernatural grace. But then comes the truth. He says, go and sin no more. In other words, what He's saying to her is you can't continue in your sinful lifestyle. You're heading down a path of destruction. Turn from your sin and follow Me. Go and sin no more. That's pure truth. Supernatural truth. It's a big signpost for her in the land of grace pointing out the way of life and blessing. So Jesus, full of grace and truth, shares with her grace and truth. Now think about this for just a minute. We don't know how the woman responded. This is in John chapter 8. John doesn't tell us. Ah, but you can know how you can respond, how you will respond, to Jesus. And as Jesus is here today and offering to you Himself, offering to you His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy and His love, and also offering to you His truth, the path of life and blessing, you can say, yes. Yes, Jesus. I want to follow You. I want to be like You. I want to come to the end of my life and say, be able to say with a clear conscience, I have followed You and I have no regrets. I have no regrets. Amen.